Hi, my name's Bronwyn and we're going to be reading the Bible together now. The reading is from 2 Samuel chapter 7. It is found on page 267 of the black or red Bibles that are up the, the back or over at the corner there. And if you are reading the Bible on your phone, it's the Christian Standard Bible. 2 Samuel chapter 7. It refers to the king, and the king is King David. When the king had settled into his palace, and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies, the king said to the prophet Nathan, Look, I am living in a cedar house while the ark of God sits inside tent curtains. So Nathan told the king, Go and do all that is on your mind, for the Lord is with you. But that night the, Lord of, the word of the Lord came to Nathan, Go to my servant David and say, This is what the Lord says. Are you to build me a house to dwell in? From the time I brought the Israelites out of Egypt until today, I have not dwelt in a house. Instead, I have been moving around with a tent as my dwelling. In all my journeys with all the Israelites, have I ever spoken a word to one of the tribal leaders of Israel, whom I commanded to shepherd my people, asking, why haven't you built me a house of cedar? Now this is what you are to say to my servant David. This is what the Lord of armies says. I took you from the pasture, from tending the flock, to be the ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone, and I have destroyed all your enemies before you. I will make a great name for you, like that of the greatest on the earth. I will designate a place for my people Israel and plant them, so that they may live there and not be disturbed again. Evildoers will not continue to oppress them as they have done ever since the day I ordered judges to be over my people Israel. I will give you rest from all your enemies. The Lord declares to you, the Lord himself will make a house for you. When your time comes and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up after you your descendant who will come from your body and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be his father, and he will be my son. When he does wrong, I will discipline him with a rod of men and blows from mortals. But my faithful love will never leave him, as it did when I removed it from Saul, whom I removed before you. Your house and kingdom will endure before me forever, and your throne will be established forever. Nathan reported all these words and this entire vision to David. Then King David went in, sat in the Lord's presence, and said, Who am I, Lord God, and what is my house that you have brought me this far? What you have done so far was a little thing to you, Lord God. For you have spoken about your servant's house in the distant future. 
And this is a revelation for mankind, Lord God. What more can David say to you? You know your servant, Lord God. Because of your word and according to your will, you, will, you have revealed all these great things to your servant. This is why you are great, Lord God. There is no one like you. There is no God beside you, as all we have heard confirms. And who is like your people, Israel? God came to one nation on earth in order to redeem a people for himself, to make a name for himself, and to perform for them great and awesome acts, driving out nations and their gods before your people you redeemed for yourself from Egypt. You established your people, Israel, to be your own people forever, and you, Lord, have become their God. Now, Lord God, fulfill the promise forever that you have made to your servant and his house. Do as you have promised, so that your name will be exalted forever when it is said, The Lord of armies is God over Israel. The house of your servant David will be established before you since you, Lord of armies, God of Israel, have revealed this to your servant when you said, I will build a house for you. Therefore, your servant has found courage to pray to you this prayer, to pray to you this prayer to you. Lord God, you are God. Your words are true, and you have promised this good thing to your servant. Now, please bless your servant's house that, so that it will continue before you forever. For you, Lord God, have spoken, and with your blessing, your servant's house will be blessed forever. Good morning, Church at Nine. Wonderful to be here with you. My name is Greg. I'm one of the ministers here at OBC, um, minister at Church at Four. On your handouts, in your handouts, there's an outline of the talk. Great place to take notes. Great place to sort of follow where we're going. Keep your Bibles open to two Samuel seven as we work through this stunning passage of God's Word. This part of God's Word. Well, the date is April 20, 1964. A courtroom in Pretoria, white South Africa, there's 10 men accused of multiple counts of sabotage, furthering communism and aiding foreign powers, essentially treason against the state, the white ruling authorities. One of the accused, instead of being questioned and being cross-examined, decided to give a speech to the judge, to the court and to a world watching the racial and political unrest in South Africa. His name, of course, Nelson Mandela. This speech became known as a speech that changed South Africa. It moved people. It changed people. It began to mobilise a world for change in South Africa, for democracy. Nelson Mandela spoke for three hours from the dock, outlining the history of oppression, the need for change, for freedom, for an end to racial division. Have a listen to these closing words of this three-hour address. During my lifetime, I have dedicated myself to this struggle of the African people. I have fought against white domination. I have fought against black domination. I have cherished the ideal of a democratic and free society in which all persons live together in harmony and with equal opportunities. It's an ideal which I hope to live for and to achieve, but if needs be... It's an ideal for which I am prepared to die. 
He said those last words, looking the judge in the eye. And he said them knowing that he might well be asked to die for this cause by being given the death sentence. At the end of the trial, he and seven of his fellow accused were convicted of their crimes and sent to life in prison. But this speech just echoed across South Africa and echoed across the world, garnering support, moving hearts, changing minds. Until May 10, 1994, he was inaugurated as South Africa's first democratically elected president. This speech that he spoke way back 30 years before was a speech that changed South Africa. It's a speech, really, that impacted the world. But as significant and as world-changing as those words were, they pale in comparison to the words we just read in 2 Samuel 7. A different speech, a promise of God, words from God that not just changed living history, they ushered in a change in the way that God works with his people to fulfil his promise. They lay a path that led to the Lord Jesus Christ. These words changed the shape of eternity and reveal a salvation plan of a living, speaking, fulfilling, promise-making God. And I pray that in some small way I'll help us all to see this again this morning. I pray that we'll listen to these words of God and let it shape and change and move us and our lives. So have a look at 7 verse 1. We see David relaxing in his palace, resting, enjoying the peace and the security of his kingdom, a security God has won for him. And he surveys his kingdom and he feels that everything is where it should be. His people are safe and secure in the land that God has promised. He reigns over united people who have pledged loyalty to him as their king. The Philistines have been taught a thing or two, and they're no longer a threat to the nation. He's secure the city of Jerusalem. It's become known as the city of David. The palace has been built for him and his family. The ark has been safely brought into the tabernacle, and every morning, every evening, every Sabbath, the priests and the people make sacrifices to their God and worship their God. There's a sense of permanence and safety and security that is captured in this word that he uses, rest, that God uses, that is in the passage, first one, rest. But as he looks out the window of his palace, he notices that something is wrong. He looks down from his window and sees the tabernacle, the tent, that is the dwelling place of God, God's name, the symbol of his presence. He's built a palace for himself in Jerusalem, but God's dwelling is behind a sheet of canvas. And so he speaks to the prophet Nathan. He said, look, I'm, I'm living in a house of cedar while the ark of God sits inside a tent curtain. He doesn't explicitly state what he wants to do in order to address this imbalance, but it's not hard for Nathan to read between the lines, a temple. Now is the time. God promises have been fulfilled. It's time to put down roots for the kingdom by building a lasting house for God. Nathan doesn't ask God what God wants to do. He simply presumes. He assumes to know the mind of God. That's a dangerous thing to do, isn't it? When you consider in 1 Samuel so far what has happened to people who assume to know what God thinks, like Saul, like Uzzah that we saw last week. Nathan says, go and do all that is on your mind, for the Lord is with you, says Nathan. David and Nathan are like a young sporting club that's become successful. You know, the teams are full, the junior teams are running around the fields, the, the, the coaches are all keen and active and helping their teams to win more often than not. It's time to build the clubhouse. 
Let's get that going. Put down roots, make things permanent. David and Nathan have plans. What does God think? Well, it doesn't take long and we find out, and David and Nathan find out what God thinks. And we see it there, verse 4, verses 4 to 7. Go and tell David, are you to build me a house? Did I tell you to do anything like this? Have I ever told anyone I was uncomfortable moving around with my people in a tent as my dwelling? Did you think about asking me what I would think, what I want? Then verses 8 to 9, he reminds David of all that he has done for him. God took him from being a shepherd boy to, to make him the king of his people. God's been with him, giving him victory after victory after victory. God has made David all that he is that day. That's something David knows, but it's something David needs to be reminded of. God does things for him. He needs God, not the other way around. And then from halfway through verse 9, God begins to speak about what he's going to do. He starts making promises. What's left to be fulfilled, God's great promise and plan. And this is where the speech takes flight and we see God's plans, God's promises the wonder of what God is saying here. Verse 9, I will make your name great. Verse 10, I will plant my people in a safe place, a place of rest and blessing and security. Verses 10 and 11, I will give you rest, lasting peace. I will give you abundance and blessing. What God is telling David is that while all the building blocks of the kingdom seem to be in place, there's still more to be done. There's still more to be fulfilled. You're not there yet. One of the reasons it's not time to build the temple is because there's more to be fulfilled. He might feel like he's arrived, but God says you haven't arrived yet. It's, it's like David and Nathan have been on a road trip. And David's asked, Nathan, are we there yet? Are we there yet? And Nathan says, yep, we're here, we're home. And God says, no, you're not. You're not home yet. We're not there. There's more to come. And that's where David, what we see here is that David has too small a picture of what God is doing, of how big God's plans really are. And the words that God uses in verses 9 and 10 help us appreciate just how big God's plans are. Verses 9 to 10 are meant to remind us of another massive promise of the living God, the promise to Abraham way back in Genesis 12. Have a look at these promises to Abraham. But we're going to read them now. See if you can see the connections between this promise and the promise to David and to Samuel. He says, I'll make you into a great nation. I'll bless you. I'll make your name great and you will be a blessing. I'll bless those who bless you and whoever curses you, I will curse. And all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. And then four verses later, he says, to your offspring, I will give this land. Can you see those connections between 2 Samuel 7 and Genesis 12? Here they are, if you can't see them yet. God says he'll make David's name great as well, just as he made Abraham's name great. Now put yourself in David's shoes. Abraham is God's, you know, is the great father of the nation, and God is saying, I'll make your name great as well. It's a huge promise. God says he will plant the people in the land. David may feel like this promise has been fulfilled, but it's clear God has more in mind. The promise to Abraham of the land is still incomplete. And God has more to do and will do. But the biggest promise here in these verses of Genesis 12 is the promise to bless. And you can see how many times that word bless comes up in those two short verses. Five times we see the word bless. 
So when God promises rest from the enemies in the land, it's that word rest that really carries the idea of blessing that we see in Genesis 12. Rest from your enemies is not just a picture of an end of warfare, but it's a rest that takes us right back to Genesis chapter 2. The rest that God and Adam and Eve experienced in the garden. That's the rest. That's the blessing that God is promising. The rest that comes from enjoying a world the way that God made it to be. The land as God promised it would become, a land of blessing and abundance and lasting joy. The the rest, the blessing of rich relationship with our living God. Personal relationship with our living God and wonderful relationship one with another. The promise of Genesis 12, the promise repeated to Samuel 7, is the promise of God to do no less than reverse the curse of Genesis 3. That's how big this promise is. Can you see how David and Nathan's idea of what God was doing was just too small? God wants David and Nathan to look back at the promises of God to Abraham and see that they had not got home yet. There's so much more God has promised to do that God will do. And the Old Testament is sprinkled all through with different promises of God. Thousands of them jumping out of every page of every, of every book, nearly every chapter in the Old Testament. But all of these promises really come back to one great big promise. So much so that you can really say that there's just one promise that God makes. And every other promise really comes under that one great promise to bring rest and blessing. The one promise that rules them all from which all other promises come. The promise of God to deal with sin, to reverse the curse and bring blessing. The blessing of a reconciled and personal relationship with God and with one another in a world that's made right. But there's still more that God is promising to do in this speech from God in 2 Samuel 7. God goes on to promise an eternal kingdom, an eternal king, the promise of the house of David. David wanted to build a house and God says, You want to build me a house? No, no, you're not going to build me a house. I'm going to build you a house, a bigger, better house. I'm going to build you a dynasty. And you can see this promise in verses 11 and 12 of 2 Samuel 7. God says this great plan to reverse the curse, this great promise to bring blessing and rest will be fulfilled not by you, but by a king coming from your line. From David's house will come a king who will build a house for God, a king who will bring in an eternal kingdom. And it's in these words that we see the epic promise that God is making to David. God is saying to David, from this promise on, God will work through your family to bring the promise of blessing. When God made the promise to Abraham back in Genesis 12, he was really repeating the promise that he made to Adam and Eve, the promise to deal with sin, to crush the serpent's head and bring them back into blessing and rest. But in the promise to Abraham, what God was saying was that, okay, my promises are for the whole world, for all nations, but to fulfill that promise, to reverse the curse and bring blessing, I'm going to work through your family, the nation that comes from you, Abraham. That's how I'm going to fulfill this promise, to reverse the curse for the whole world. That's why in Genesis 12, the focus changes from the whole world, all of humanity, 
to one people, one nation, Israel, from that point in the Old Testament on. And the promise to David is similar. What God is promising is that his promise to bring blessing, to crush the serpent's head, will not just come through this one nation. Abraham's descendants is going to happen through the line of David. Through this one family, through this one king. Can you see how big this promise is? How significant it is in the pages of the Old Testament. What a huge thing it is that God is saying to David. How this speech makes even Nelson Mandela's speech in the courtroom in Pretoria fade in comparison. From this point on, the focus lands on this eternal kingdom and an eternal king. We look for this king who will build a house for God, who will establish God's eternal kingdom, who will truly bring rest and blessing not only for God's people Israel, but for all nations as promised to Abraham. And David gets how big this promise is. When David prays in the second half of this chapter, have a look at verse 19, where he says, What you have done so far was a little thing to you, Lord God, for you have also spoken about your servant's house in the distant future. And this is a revelation for mankind, Lord God. David recognises that what God has done so far is small, insignificant. Now, David's fully aware of just how much God has done for him, making him the king, the anointed ruler of God's chosen people. God has done so much. But what he promises here is not just next level, it's next galaxy. It's just right out there compared to what he's done so far. This is a revelation, a word, a promise for all humanity. And, and David appreciates the magnitude of this promise. And so should we. David wanted to build a house for God because he felt the kingdom had been fulfilled. They'd reached their destination. God promises to build a different, a better house for David. Why do we build houses? Why do we build houses? We build houses for security, for permanency, for shelter from the forces that surround us, for safety, to make a home. God is promising to build a lasting house that will be truly permanent, truly secure, because it's grounded in his promise. This house gives real permanency, lasting stability, and will truly last into eternity. It's where we find hope and security and identity and salvation in this house that's promised to David, a king and a kingdom that is to come. So if this promise shapes the rest of the Old Testament, what does God do to fulfill it? Well, when David's time came and he rested with his fathers, he died, that is, God raised up his son Solomon. And his Solomon, guess what he did? He built a house for the name of the Lord, the temple for Yahweh. God granted his people peace and security and rest from their enemies. God planted them in the land with security and blessing. And he even, through Solomon, blessed the nations around them. Kings and nobles and nations from all around came to Jerusalem to hear the wisdom of Solomon and they were blessed. There's a wonderful verse in 1 Kings that beautifully describes the fulfilment of God's blessing for his people. Where it says this, Throughout Solomon's reign, Judah and Israel lived in safety from Dan to Beersheba, each person under his own vine and under his own fig tree. What a beautiful picture of blessing and rest. And if you were there in Solomon's kingdom, you might have been thinking, wow, God's promises are being fulfilled. They're all coming together. 
the eternal kingdom that God has promised to David? Is it, is, is it coming through Solomon? Is he the one? Well, you wouldn't have to scratch the surface too far to see, no, it's not Solomon. Solomon worshipped idols. He led his people into idolatry. He was judged by God because he refused to listen and to obey God's word. As was promised in 2 Samuel 7, he did wrong and God punished him with the rod of men. And nearly every king in David's line followed that same pattern of idolatry, leading their people into sin, failing to listen to the word of God, until finally a king set up idols in a temple built by Solomon. And God had enough. And so by the end of two kings, by the end of this story really, there's no Jerusalem, there's no king in Israel, the people are thrown out of the land, they're judged, they're cursed, and the promise of God from 2 Samuel 7 just seems hollow, unfulfilled, unlikely. But in the darkness of this judgment, God repeats his promise of a greater king, and a, a greater king in the line of David who will rule, who will bring blessing and rest and peace and fulfilment of God's promise to David. God's promise to David keeps popping up its head throughout the rest of the Old Testament. And the Old Testament ends with this promise of a king, the promise of blessing and rest, an eternal kingdom that brings blessing to the nations, unfulfilled. That's how it ends. And we long for a greater king. Then in comes Jesus, God's great promise and plan fulfilled. We'll go to the quote from, yep, thank you, from Luke, where an angel speaks to Mary. Don't be afraid, Mary, for you have found favour with God. Now listen, you will conceive and give birth to a son and you will name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. He will rule over the house of Jacob forever and his kingdom will never end. Jesus is that eternal king. And he can be that eternal king because he rose from the dead to live forever. He's the one who fulfills God's great promise. He's the one to bring his people into rest. He's the one who was, whose name is great indeed, the name above all names. He's the one who brings blessing to all the nations of the earth. And he's the one who builds the house for the name of the Lord, a greater house than Solomon built. Jesus was in the temple courts, John chapter 2, disgusted, angered by what he saw in his father's house, in the house that bears his father's name. He turned over the tables of the money changers. He made a whip and drove out the cattle and the sheep and he called out in anger, get these things out of here. Stop turning my father's house into a marketplace. The leaders are shocked, offended, furious. They question him, what sign will you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered these words, destroy this temple and I will raise it up in three days. Then John tells us that he was speaking about the temple of his body. He fulfills all that the temple stood for, all that happened in the temple. What did, what did the temple represent? God among us. The presence of God in the world, sacrifice for sins were made there. The work of God's priests in obtaining forgiveness of sins. The word of God at the very centre of this building in the Ark of the Covenant. The covenant of God with his people. Jesus fulfills each and every one of those. He truly is God among us, the true representation of God's being. He is 
the once-for-all sacrifice for sins. He is the priest who brings us into the presence of the Father. He is the final word from God. He brings a new and better and lasting covenant. And what is this great king doing now, this risen eternal king? Well, he's still, still fulfilling the promise made to David in 2 Samuel 7. He's still building a house for the name of his father because those who come to trust in Jesus, those who accept this great and eternal king as their king, Jesus is building into a house for the name of his father. Look at this quote from Ephesians. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in his spirit. Can you see these words and just see how stunning they are? If you trust in Jesus, you are part of God's answer to David's promise, to David's prayer. A fulfillment of God's great promise that he made to Adam and Eve, to Abraham and then to David to bring blessing to the nations. You're caught up in that great and epic promise and fulfilment of God's plans. We love being part of something significant, don't we? It's it's an amazing thing, witnessing a world-changing event. I was 18 when the Berlin Wall came down. A monumental event that changed the world. It signified the failure of communism in Western Europe, the tearing down of the Iron Curtain. If you were in Berlin at that time, you just had to be there. But not just be there to witness it, you had to be a part of it. That is, you would help dismantle the wall. You would take a pick to it. You would break it apart. You'd take home a souvenir of this this moment in history. Those seeking the end of the rule and reign of apartheid in South Africa wanted to be a part of something significant, part of making meaningful change, and many risked their lives to be a part of that change, like Mandela. This speech in 2 Samuel 7 gives us a window into God's great and eternal work to bring an end to curse and to save us from sin and Satan, to bring us into rest and blessing. God fulfilled that promise in Jesus, and Jesus is still fulfilling this promise as he continues to build a house for his Father, bringing people from death to life, saving people from their sin, as people speak the gospel of his death and resurrection to a world under curse. God is building his temple as those who love and trust in him, growing knowledge and love and service of the Lord Jesus Christ. And how is God at work now to fulfill his promise to David to build this temple through his word on the lips of his people and through the prayers of those who trust in his name? When Nathan spoke the words of this promise to David, how did David respond? He prayed. And did you notice what he prayed for? He prayed that God would fulfill the promise that he'd made. Verse 25, have a look at it in 2 Samuel 7. Now, Lord God, fulfill the promise forever that you have made to your servant and his house. Do as you have promised so that your name will be exalted forever. Does he pray this because he doubts that God will do what he says? No, he prays it because he knows that God will do what he says. He prays God's promises back to him. Do you want to be a part of God's great and eternal work in this world to bring blessing and rest and hope and life? Then pray. Pray the promises of God back to him. God said he would gather the lost, the broken, the sinner. So pray that he would. 
God said he would build his church. Pray that he would. Pray the promises of God back to him. Knowing that God will act, knowing that God will use his words to build his church, to save the lost and the broken. And pray that he would use you as he does. Because the second way you can be a part of God's great and eternal work in this world is to speak and to serve. To bring blessing and hope and life. What God is doing, how he's doing that is through the lips of his people as they play their part in building a house for God, this temple, this church, this people. So as you encourage someone over coffee after church, as you meet together in growth group and spur one another on to love and forgive and to serve, as you chat with a friend to help them take that next step closer to coming to know and love the God that you know and love, you're playing your part in God's great work. As you clean up the ministry centre to help the next ministry to work well, you're playing your part in this great work that God is doing to bring blessing to all nations. Let that spur you on. Let that capture your heart the same way it captured David's heart. That what God is doing is bigger than you first thought. And remember that the labour that we do for the Lord is not in vain. Let's pray.